Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Today, we welcome on Tony Elliott onto the Golders podcast. Tony's an ex-professional goalkeeper that transitioned into coaching. He's worked as the goalkeeping coach for numerous different England teams and setups, and for several different clubs, including clubs in the Women's Super League. Enjoy. Today's guest I met in 2012, whilst I was delivering a, a Mod 1 course for the FA. He's authored a book called The Modern Approach to Goalkeeping. Tony, Tony Elliott, welcome. Hello, Mr. Mayor and Mr. Mayor. What are you doing, Tony, with your time? Um, well, I'm quite lucky, really. Um, obviously, with my number of my roles, I do a lot of travelling, Keith, so I spend a lot of time away from family. So this has given me a great opportunity to spend some real quality time with, with loved ones within the household. We've just recently had a a grandson so uh, we've got a baby in the house our son and his girlfriend live with us so spending lots of time with, with them and obviously me and my daughter and my wife who, who live as well so we've got a full house so plenty to do um but i think the lovely thing has been and, and a great thing with with uh, technology nowadays is that um i've been contacted by you know a multitude of, of different people from around the globe really just wanting to talk and chat and, and get guidance and help and so basically, I've, I've followed those requests up and, and spent um, you know numerous hours talking to people, uh, chatting about goalkeeping, about football, about futsal, and a whole host of different things. And it's been lovely. So I've kept my eye on the ball as such and uh, not fallen away from football, kept in contact with the game. We're in confined to the house and, and doing a lot of things uh, remotely. So I'm enjoying it, actually. It might uh, give me an idea of what's to come later in me coaching career doing more theoretical work than I would do practically so yeah I'm enjoying it at the moment. Just tell us a little bit give us a summary of your playing career I know you played over you played 186 professional games in the football league as a goalkeeper and uh, equally as a coach so well, we're going to pry we want to delve in draw out some of that knowledge and understanding that you've got of the game both as a player and now as a coach of course, yeah. So, I mean, you say 186, that was league games. So, I think in total, including cup games and the like, probably closer to 250 professional games. Um, remembering I retired when I was 30 from the game, playing-wise, through injury. So, I had a, a goalkeeping career cut short, probably by about 10 years. You know, I could have played probably till I was I was 40. I could probably play now. I'm still fit enough. And, I, and I'm 50 now, so you know, uh, confidence in me, in me, in here. But I'm not sure physically whether I keep up with, with uh, 90 minutes of football. But I give it a good shot. So, lots of experience in terms of playing. A little bit injury prone towards the back end of my career. So probably didn't play as many games as I possibly could have. Um, I would have liked to have got closer to four or five hundred rather than 250. But it, what it is, what it is, and I, and I had to deal with that. 
I guess it all started, you know, I'll, I'll try and be brief with sort of my introduction to football. But, you know, as a, as a kid, I was, uh, you know, literally, you know, and I, and I said I was going to be frank and honest. I was the, I was a little fat kid in goal. You know, I was, I was very heavy, uh, you know, when I was nine, ten years old. And literally, the, the only place for me to go and play, because I couldn't run about, physically I wasn't capable, um, was to go in the goal. I was quite tall, so... You know, literally, I filled the goal. So that's where I got put. And, um, you know, the, the rest is history in terms of what happened in latter years. But by the time I got to about the age of 12, 13 into senior school, um, I had a bit of a growth spurt. The weight dropped off, became more of an athlete, um, took a, a little bit of uh, sort of bodybuilding and things like that. And you know, my hero at the time was Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I kind of you know, got on the weights and started to do that kind of stuff. And that helped me physically. So, but then through me sort of my junior football, started to get noticed in terms of my capability as a, as a goalkeeper of a decent level, playing grassroots uh, with a club and then obviously playing for the school and the district and playing in a game one Saturday morning for my district, got spotted by a scout from Villa and uh, was asked to, to trial at Aston Villa. And then I guess within the space of two or three months, we had... You know, a whole host of clubs knocking the door. Birmingham, Forest, Tottenham, Wolves, West Brom, they were all knocking the door and asking me to go for, for trials and training. And uh, it was a bit of a whirlwind because then, I don't know if you remember, the, the FA National School at Lillyshaw was was set up by Bobby Robson and Charles Hughes in 1984. And I then got asked to go on uh, the trial system and process for the National School. Went through about seven or eight tri- trials and just prior to my 14th birthday, got selected as one of the first ever uh, 25 players that uh, was the intake at the FA National School at Lillyshaw in 1984. And my parents and myself, we had a conversation and it was decided that I was going to go and leave home at 14. So that really was the beginning of sort of the professional life. Lillyshaw was a, you know, it was a boarding school type situation where we went to school every day. We trained every day, two or three times a day on some occasions. Uh, but we represented England at schoolboy level and at youth level for, for a couple of years. And uh, that was my grounding. And, and you asked me about coaching and, and where I got into it. And that, I think, you know, we'll probably allude to it a bit later in the conversation. But my first influences in coaching really came from that experience. You know, in terms of goalkeeper coaching, I had uh, we had Mike Kelly, who was the then uh, England uh, senior team goalkeeper coach. He was our in-house goalkeeper coach. At Lily Shaw, he was Bobby Robson's goalkeeper coach at the time for the England squad. And then we, in terms of our sessions, um, the lead coach was a gentleman called Dave Sexton, who I guess you probably know quite well. Um, he was the in-house um, head coach of our, our squad. So he worked with us every day and what an experience that was. And then to support him, uh, back in those days, we had regional coaches uh, working for the FA, who would work on a rotor system. So every week we'd have a, a regional coach drop in and come and uh, do the sessions with us and support Dave Sexton and Mike Kelly. And you know, I'll rattle some names off now. We had the Mike, the dear friend of yours who we were talking about recently, Dick Batesworth, Kevin Verity, uh, Colin Murphy, and I could I could go on and on. And and those guys would come in on a, a rotational basis. And that was my first real exposure to absolutely top level coaching and if I couldn't absorb that and take that on board and, and get a bug about coaching from those people well it was never going to happen but it did 
and that's where it really all started for me. So that, that was the start. Can you shed some light what it's actually like being a goalkeeper? Yeah, I, again, you know, I'll go back to those, those early days. You know, I, I haven't uh, sort of then sort of moved on to the professional side of my career. But I think exposure to um, playing on big occasions, playing in front of massive crowds, and I'm talking between 60 and 100,000 people, at the age of 14, 15, 16, was, for me, monumental in, in terms of me being able to deal with the game, play the game, and deal with the pressures of the game. Imagine that at 14 years old. You're walking out at Wembley to play for England schoolboys against Germany, against Switzerland. There's 60,000, 70,000 people in the crowd. You know, at the age of 16, before the Charity Shield, the Manchester United... Everton game, there was 95,000 people in the stadium. And at 15, 16 years old, you walk into a wall of noise. You can't hear yourself think. You can't feel yourself breathe. You try and communicate to teammates on the pitch, you might as well forget it because you can't hear yourself or feel yourself giving information. I, 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 for the first time, I just didn't know what to do. I was lost. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to help the people around me here. All I can hear is this wall of noise. And, and you, back then, you know, the, the schoolboy games, it was packed with youngsters, school kids. It was literally, it didn't stop for the whole 90 minutes. And after about 10 minutes, I just gave up trying to talk. I just thought, right, I'm just going to focus on my job. If I get a player within five, six yards of me, I know they'll hear me now and I'll be able to get late but at least a loud and decent um, bit of communication act. but I think at that age I was playing the game because I loved it because it was just everything I wanted to do so I literally went out without fear so the communication side of it was different that wasn't fear it was just kind of going well I can't get anything out here so I'm just there's no need for me to do it. I'm just going to play the game and I absolutely loved it Obviously, before the games, you're kind of nervous a little bit and, and a little bit, little bit apprehensive because you want to perform well. But really, there was nothing. There was nothing on it. It was just representing my country, and and, I, and that was everything I wanted to do, and I loved it. So, in that sense, dealing with the pressure, it was just literally the, the wall of noise, and then loving playing. Now, when you get to professional level, it changes because it's a results-oriented business, and not only have you got to perform to keep place, but you've got to perform to make sure that the institutions that you work for stay in business and they can continue to, to operate. Because if, and again, at different levels, if results don't happen, the crowds dwindle and clubs find it financially very difficult. So the pressure so much is on you to perform. So the mechanisms to deal with the pressure at playing at, in, on those big occasions at, you know, in, in schoolboy and youth level were different to the way it was for me when I was playing professionally purely and simply because of the outcomes that were expected at playing at those different levels one being development in terms of the England setup and so on where yes the result was important but it wasn't the be all and end all whereas in professional life it is yes performance has got to be high if you're a younger goalkeeper a younger player yes you know the development is there but ultimately it's results oriented. So you know the slightest mistake as a goalkeeper, you can see the sloppy goal. It could cost the club thousands of pounds. 
And sometimes as a young player, that's what you could be going out there and thinking about. And, and I was also fortunate enough when I played that we didn't have such things as social media. So the only stick you would get or, or berating would either come from the coaching staff on the sideline, from your teammates on the pitch, or the crowd that was around you. You, you didn't sort of go home and have to deal with constant abuse or, or getting berated on social media or you had a bad one today, that was a bad mistake, blah, blah, blah. And then actually seeing that, and not just you seeing it, but also nowadays, family, friends, they can all see it. And uh, so in that sense, I was lucky. So it was confined to the stadium and then you could walk away from it. And, but, you know, there was still that, that issue that if you did make a mistake, you had to try and quickly find the mechanisms to move on from it because then you had to go and perform on that stage again. Uh, sometimes as, as close as two or three days later. So mentally, you had to be tough. You had to be robust. And and it was different in those days. It was quite cutthroat, you know, in terms of peer pressure from your teammates. You know, if you didn't perform, then you were told. Um, you know, nowadays, it's a little bit more um, freer and open and, and, and people are a little bit more careful about the way they conduct themselves and the way they, they, they sort of connect with people. So... But in those days, it was a tough school. And if you didn't perform, you got both barrels and you soon sort of snapped out of it. Tony, in terms of the mindset and the, the mentality of professional goalkeepers, mm. what challenges do they face? And also, what qualities do they require to get them to that level and to keep them there? Yeah, well, again, look, you know, we're talking about top level. Everything now is scrutinised. Every game at top level is screened across a multitude of different nations, live or recorded and then shown as highlights. And so the, the guys at the top level know that any, anything they do, uh, anything they sort of say on the pitch or, you know, any kind of indiscretion that goes on, it's going to be scrutinised and looked at. And you have to be so thick-skinned um, to be able to, to sort of deal with that and know that that might happen. And ultimately, you might suddenly on a Saturday night have a pundit having a moan and groan about your performance. And I think sometimes what happens is, and I think this is where I'll go back to, um, you know, those early days playing in the, in the big games. I think sometimes you, you just, you have to go back to why you're actually doing it because you love doing it. And I think what you do is you, and what I used to do is try and close the crowd out in the end. Close out any, any peripheral, the crowd or anything external to me trying to shut that out. And I think that's what probably the best of the best do, is they just think about what's going on in between those white lines and try and focus fully on the job at hand. Anything outside of that and beyond that, they'll deal with it after. But what they try and do is try and make sure that when they're on the pitch and they're playing, is that they fully focus on the game in hand and they don't worry about the ramifications or, or you know the consequences of anything that might occur created by actions that, that, that happened during the game. So I think um, there's a massive amount of pressure because of that, because it's scrutinised, because it's watched everywhere. Um, literally every part of the game is watched from some different angle, from a whole host of cameras around the stadium. So the requirements to perform to the highest level are so high now. And again, it comes back to you know PLCs and companies and business and and, and money, you know, you went to look at Liverpool, what happened with, with Carrius, you know, and how much that probably cost Liverpool 
because of a performance like that in the Champions League and what happens, bang, they go and get another goalkeeper and pay 60-odd million, but they then go and get the result they wanted. So, But that's the consequence to, to Karius is that now he's farmed out, he's playing in Turkey somewhere and, and probably will never play at the highest level ever again. That's how cutthroat it is. So, you you uh, mentioned yeah. that, Tony. It's interesting as you refer to the, the mental mentality and the mindset of goalkeepers and mm-hmm. tuning it out. Out of all the players on the pitch, you're next door to the... You literally sat on top of the spectators. And we, case in point is the, the South End goalkeeper, Ted Smith playing with, with cameras around him all the time, but the spotlight, no. so it, it actually impacts all goalkeepers at all levels. Would you agree with that? Definitely. And, you know, we, we alluded to, to that story about Ted, who's now um, retired from the game at 24, played at Southend because of, of abuse he was getting, you know, on social media and so on. You know, and with all due respect, that's not at the very top elite level of the game. You know, I mean, this young lad was an England youth international, you know, and for one reason or another, it's not quite happened for him to go and perform at top level. But if you imagine a player like that can't deal with it and is finding it tough, um, you imagine what it's like for a young grassroots goalkeeper, eight, nine, ten years old, who, and, and we see quite often, you know, playing in a game and the next thing you know, either the coach is berating them from the sideline or, you know, there's a, an overzealous parent stood at the side and is trying to sort of um, dictate the game to them and get them to perform and create actions that probably the goalkeeper doesn't need to make. Now, you imagine the pressure on that eight, nine, ten-year-old young goalkeeper who, who's literally playing it for the love of it. But to the same token as Ted, there's, you know, you could say that's a form of, of <laughs> verbal abuse, you know, that, that, the goalkeeper is being forced to fall out of love with the game because every movement they're making is being berated or it's being dictated to by somebody stood on the sideline. So the love of the game, the enjoyment of the game, quickly flows away from that young individual. So we have to be really careful. This can happen at all levels, from grassroots into Ted Smith's level in in the, the lower leagues of professional football and to elite levels. We look at Robert Enker, uh, God rest his soul, you know, the German goalkeeper who we lost a few years ago and literally, you know, in the prime of his career, playing at the very top level, internationally, club level, just found some reason for not wanting to be with us and around that form or that part of his, his existence and, and, and took his own life. And uh, it can get to that, that extreme. And that's the, the sad side of professional life and how pressure, especially goalkeepers, can feel because... A lot of the time, the goalkeeper, although it's a team game, the goalkeeper works a lot in isolation. They're quite isolated from the game and from the play. And I'll tell you what, when the play's up the other end, and look, the goalkeeper will then be supporting the play. They'll be higher up the pitch and, and trying to stay in contact with the game. But you'll still, if it's loud enough, if it's if it's nasty enough, naughty enough, you'll still, still hear those comments that might be thrown from, say, opposition fans or even, you know, your home supporters if they don't quite like what they're seeing from you on a regular basis. And that can be quite cutting. It can be quite hard to handle and quite hard to manage. And it can be quite difficult. But as I said, that's across all levels. And we have to be really careful, um, you know, how much influence and input those from the side actually have on trying to affect those that are actually playing the game because they love the game. Some great insights there, Tony. And 
I think with goalkeepers, one mistake and it's a goal. Or it very well could be a goal. Whereas you look at players in different positions, outfield, they misplace a pass. They've just lost possession. They have an opportunity to redeem it. And with a goalkeeper, there's so much pressure on it. We, we know we've seen it. You've mentioned it with Karius. It was two mistakes. But there were other players on the field that made two and maybe a lot more mistakes during the game. They just weren't highlighted as much. So in terms of... We've touched on, from a playing perspective, the mentality of goalkeepers. And you mentioned that you retired at 30. When you, when you finished playing, how did you find the transition from playing to coaching? Um, yeah, I'll be honest with you. And, and there's a lot of things around that, you know, actually walking away from the game. It was hugely tough in some respects because it's all I'd ever known. It was my whole life. You know, I wasn't academically bright or great you know I got a couple of GCSEs when I was at school and it was always going to be football and, and once you know I got spotted as I said by, by Villa and other clubs and then moved eventually signed professional for Birmingham City at 17 years old I knew that football was my life so to have that taken away from you something you love so dearly and you've spent your whole life dedicated to you've made the sacrifices required to get to the highest level you've trained every day of your life to be at the peak of your fitness. that It's the hardest thing. And, and, and although it was hard not being able to play the football, probably the hardest thing for a long period of time because of the injury I sustained was actually not being able to be an athlete and to just literally put my running shoes on and go for a run or to lift some weights because I injured my back and you have to be very careful with backs. And especially when I've done the injury, I, I, I tore some ligaments just off the left-hand side of my spine. So I had to be really careful for a couple of years. So... I mean, in terms of coaching, as I said, I, I got the bug early at Lee Shaw and, and learned from so many masters of, of the coaching game, all different in their own way and all fantastic in terms of the way they supported players and what we did. So I'd started coaching sort of from the ages of 17, 18, 19. Any, any club I was involved with, I always tried to sort of play a part and help their youth elements in terms of goalkeepers. So I'd drop in and do the odd session with you know, their trainee goalkeepers or you know, at the latter stage of my career, the academy system had started. So I'd drop in and work the centres of excellence and the academy keeper. So just keeping me eye in. But it was, in another respect, it was a bit of a relief because, as I said to you, I was a bit injury prone the last few years of my career. And I think it probably stemmed from playing too much football and let, let that be a warning to, to others that, you know, we can, we, can, we can actually burn players out if we're not careful, if, if they're playing too much football. I know it's a little bit different now with the, the strength and conditioning support, the sports science support that we have, especially at top level where loading is monitored to the last second and the timings of sessions is, is very much scrutinised and things like that. But back in my day, it wasn't, you know, back in at Lushaw, we were doing two, three sessions a day for an hour, an hour and a half at a time. It's a massive workload for a youngster that's, that's maturing, that's growing, that's developing. And eventually my body, I think, literally gave up on me at the age of 30. I sustained an injury at Cardiff City when I was about 27. I was out for six months. This was the back injury. It went, long story short, managed to find a solution or what we thought was a solution to the problem um, through my own GP. Came back, moved up to Scarborough. Had about 18 months and it went again. And literally the surgeon said, well, look, if you don't stop, if it goes again, if you try and come back, you could end up in a wheelchair. So the choice is yours. 
And at that point, I went, no. And, and to be honest with you, you know, the last six months of, of my career, I was literally just playing. I wasn't training. I was having injections before most games, either in my hip or in my groin or in my back. So I got to the point that the pain was too much. And to continue playing the game that I love so much, but in so much pain, for me, just didn't make sense. So it was hard because I love the game. It was a relief because my body was able to shut down and stop, um, you know, having the pains that I was getting. But I also knew the direction I was going to go in, and I knew that I, I just didn't want to be out of the game. And by hook or by crook, I was going to go into coaching and continue my love affair with football, and but just in 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 terms of supporting players rather than playing the game itself. You mentioned some of your earlier influences in coaching. You know, Dave Sexton, Mike Kelly. Dick Bate, of course, Nick Wadsworth, all had a, a really good, extensive knowledge about the game. You know, out of all those coaches, who are the ones that have actually influenced you? Well, I think those early years were, were pivotal. And, and again, it was a different era to what we're in now. So I think what I've been lucky enough to, to experience, Kip, is from that age of 14 all the way through to now, the age of 15, I've worked alongside and with so many coaches. And what I've tried to do over those years, and I'll mention some of the names back in those early years, I'll go back into it. But what I've learned to do is pick pieces from everybody, but you learn from all those experiences. And what I've learned to do is grab a bit from here, a bit from there, and mould it all together. It's helped me be so diverse and be able to move through different formats of the game and understand um, that each one has its own way of, of the message needed to be delivered. And, and that's what helped me. So back in those days, when you look at Lily Shaw, I mentioned some of the names there, but some of the other goalkeeper coaches that I've worked with, legends of the game, the likes of Alan Hodgkinson, who, you know, what a career he had in, in both playing and, and coaching. You know, the likes of um, Jim Barron, Paul Barron, um, I even got to work with the likes of when they were in the prime during that two-year period, working with Neville Southall and Peter Shield, two of the greatest goalkeepers that have ever played in the British Isles. And we spent days with them, working with them. Mervyn Day, who was a, you know, a great goalkeeper in his day and, and went into coaching, worked with Mervyn during that period. And, you know, there's, there's, there's others. So every one of them different. Some were quite ruthless. Uh, and direct and in your face and, you know, were real taskmasters. But some were also quite calm and introverted and really just got their points across when they needed to. They weren't, they didn't dictate sessions. They'd be more facilitators, but they'd then just give you little bits of, of real quality detail when you needed it. Some were jolly and, 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 and had a laugh in everything they did. And, like, you know, it was just everything was fun, but they still got out what they needed to. And, and that's what I'm saying about having a, such a variety and a, and a diverse group of people to work with. I, it couldn't, couldn't help but affect me. And I'd have been, it would have been crazy. And I think that coaching was going to be my thing because I was absorbing it. If it wasn't going to be my thing, Keith David, I would have deflected it. But I took it all in and I, and I just knew that that was going to be me at some point in my life. 
having had all those experiences, learned from so many different people, done thousands and thousands of sessions, led by hundreds of different coaches, that in some way, shape or form, I was going to absorb all that, take the good stuff, get rid of the bad stuff. And that would create me and mould me into the individual and the coach that I am today. What quality, Tony? And look, they've all, it sounds very much like you've been around a, a mixed bag of different character traits, which, mm -hmm. as I'm listening to, you've all helped to shape who you are now. And, but what common, what's the common quality that all of them possess? I think knowledge of the game, uh, an understanding of the game, and even back then, and, and we're in the realms of that now, it wasn't just in, in the understanding of technical development. It was actually being tactically astute and aware, understanding how to affect the game from the sideline during the flow of the game. And I think now, and, and you know, we talk about goalkeeper coaches, you know, back in the day, you know, we were literally just the facilitators of, 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 of volleys being delivered at the goalkeeper. It's changed now, moved on so much. And I, and I think the, the game knowledge, game understanding, uh, in terms of the, you know, the technical and the tactical side is huge now. So I think coaching, you have to be all round now. You have to understand how to develop players in terms of the technical aspects, both in possession and out of possession, but also tactically, you've got to be so aware and astute and recognise the ebb and flow of a game and understand, obviously, how to affect the game, from my point of view, probably with the goalkeepers and, and sort of the back line. Although I do do little bits of work with, with front players in terms of trying to help and guide them on the fallibility and weakness of the opposition, and that's done through analysis, and I'll do my best to, to help them with that. But I tend to try and focus on the goalkeepers and, and sort of the back line. But I also think they need you need empathy. You need to understand others. and how others work, how others operate. We're all different. We all come from different backgrounds. We all bring difference to the environment when we go to work, you know, uh, different upbringing. We'll have all worked with different coaches. We'll all have a different philosophy and a different belief and an understanding of the way the game should be played. Yeah, we'll, we'll collectively come together if we're working with a team because ultimately the head coach will dictate the way you play and your strategies and your philosophies. But we'll all still have different views on things. So I think empathy and understanding and being open-minded enough to listen, you know, to others' opinions. And I think that's the other key trait, is to, to actually be able to listen, to take information on board. But I think allowing others to, to share their opinions and their thoughts and their feelings and then giving an opinion, but then also coming to a happy medium, for me, is vital. To, to be what I would call um, a modern coach, you know. So I think knowledge, technically, tactically, do we have to be experts in, in the psych and, and the physical side? Not necessarily, because there's enough expertise out there if we're working in club environments to, to latch onto that and get that support. I think it helps if you can go down the psych and, and the, the sort of the, and with the psych, I'll, I'll include the social side, but also the, the physical side in terms of preparation of your players and goalkeepers in particular. I think it's important you have some base knowledge of that. So a more holistic and rounded approach to the way that you educate yourself is important. Tony, you've, you've touched on in the last answer that you gave, you talked about having a rounded approach, but the two things that you mentioned quite a few times was empathy and being a good listener. 
So it's going to take me really to the next question. When building relationships with keepers, what strategies do you use to connect? The first thing I try to do is make sure that the connection I have with anybody, and I think, Keith, probably why you and I connected so well, is kindred souls and like-minded people probably. But I just think because I have a background in the game, because I've been there, I've done it, I've played, I've played internationally, I've played professionally, that helps. I'm not saying that you have to have that to be able to connect and build relationships with goalkeepers in particular. But it does help because it gives you a bit of um, bit of uh, respect from those that you're going to be working with, and, and and they'll hold you in a little bit higher regard because they'll be wanting to sort of get detail, get information from you, help from you, guidance from you, and they know that'll be forthcoming if the connection works well and the relationship works well. But I just try and make it an easy first coming together, you know. So I'll literally, you know, walk walk in. I definitely want to shake hands with an individual and I won't just shake hands and lose me. I'll, I'll hold the hand and they're not, not in a, a funny kind of sense, but I'll hold the hand, shake the hand and introduce myself and I'll let them introduce themselves to me. I'll look them in the eye with a smile and let them know that I'm here for you. I'm here to help you. This is going to be an open book. It's going to be an open door to learning. We're going to do this together. And that's the way that I try and present myself when I first meet a goalkeeper so you've touched on how you how you build the relationship when you first meet them what you do how do you maintain those relationships well i think you when you when you've had that initial meet i think your, your first session is always important so i try to make that first session exciting enjoyable fun with clear messages clear detail of aspects of goalkeeping it will be it will be structured it will be themed but there'll be a process and and i'll i'll engage the goalkeepers and i'll, I'll again i want to excite them i want to get them on the move i don't just want them standing in a goal and, and and catching volleys or running through a line of cones and we've seen all that we've done all that so i, I try to be creative and i like them to walk out on the pitch and maybe sometimes look at the setup that I've got and go, oh, what are we doing today? So they walk on the pitch with a bit of a spring in the step and just a willingness to want to come and work. And, and I think generally I've learned that's, that's what goalkeepers want. They want excited, they want difference, they want diversity. They, yes, they want certain outcomes and they'll have certain things that they like to do to start up a session, but then very quickly you move them into, right, here we go. Here's some new learning, here's something different, but it's all related to the game and to what they're going to be going into when we play the, the next match. Also making sure that there's allowance for them to have input in what we do. So it's not a one-way uh, street or one-way system. It's a two-way deal. Real good insights there, Tony. And for, from a personal perspective, if you could go back 10 years, what advice would you give yourself? Um, that's a great question. I think... To be a better listener, um, but just being prepared to sit back a little bit, but let others have a say, let others have an opinion, have my own opinions within that, but then come to that sort of um, happy medium that, that pleases everyone. So I think sometimes back off, probably not be so so opinionated, 
and become more of a, a listener and more open-minded. And I like to think over the last 10 years, I've probably done that for the betterment of myself and others that I work with. So that would probably have been the, the, the best advice I could have given myself. And for you, Tony, what does the future hold? What's it looking like? Um, at the moment, <laughs> I'll probably end up going picking fruit or stacking shelves. I don't know because football might not be around for a while at the minute and, and we've all got to earn a crust. I'm 50 now and, and I've been coaching for, for 20 years properly full-time in the game. Probably 10 years on top of what most professional footballers would have because most get played to the late 30s, you know, until they're 40 possibly. So I've had an extra 10 years on top of most players. So, but I'm still loving it. I'm still enjoying it. I, I love the diversity that my work brings me in terms of working across the different formats of the game. I just want to be involved. I'd like to stay at top level, whether that be in, in the men's or the women's game. You know, fortunately at the moment, I'm working at the highest level in the women's game with Bristol City women. Would I go back into the men's game? Of course, you know, if, if the right opportunity was there, I would. Um, but I love my international work. I love representing my country. That's been as a player, but, you know, in the last 20 years, it's been as a coach. And you'll find no prouder patriot than myself in representing England or Great Britain on the international stage. And I just love the opportunity to work in the format with the disabled teams, with the blind squad, with the deaf squads. And obviously in futsal as well. And just being able to to sort of travel the world with that. And, and I'd like to continue that. And I want to give it another another 10 years. I promised my wife I'd retire at 55. But I, I think I don't think that's going to be happening. I think, A, because, you know, I'm still going to need to work at that point to make sure we're all right going into pensionable years. But I'll still have a love for what I do. And as long as I can physically do it, I want to keep up the physical work. Lockdown periods give me a great chance to look at becoming more of a consultant and sharing the knowledge in a slightly different way in, in terms of a more theoretical sense. And that's where I, I see myself going. I want, I want to stay at the highest level. And as long as I'm wanted and needed and keep giving me the chance to, to work with, you know, the best people in the game, then I'll continue to do that. You know, if the game falls out of love with, with me, then... I'll go back to stacking shelves, which I've done before and I'll do again if I need to. So there's no issue with that. Well, Tony, I want to thank you for coming on today. I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to you and listening to your story. And there's some incredible insights that you've shared and nuggets of information that I think there'll be a lot of people are going to take from this. Tony, how can the listeners find you? Yeah, I'm, I'm obviously, uh, you know, I'm very active on social media. So um, people can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn just by typing my name in. Uh, obviously, I'm on Twitter. So on Twitter, it's uh, at T-E-G-K-1. Uh, I'm also on Instagram and uh, that's slightly different. It's at T-E-G-K-0-1. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast 
And also, you can visit our website at www.goldduststudio.com. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.